0: Well, beloved listeners, it seems only yesterday we were discussing China's one-child policy. That policy has, of course, now been abandoned, so it's time to turn our attention to its one-language policy. For the best part of a century, the uh, the notion of one country, one common tongue has been the policy pursued by the modern Chinese state and Mandarin has been promoted as the sole national language at the expense of all others. In reality, China has a vast and varied country with an incredible diversity of languages. But in recent years, under President Xi, the one-language approach has only intensified with minority languages either dismissed neglected or actively suppressed. In uh, late August, authorities in Hong Kong raided the home of uh, Andrew Chan, the founder of a Cantonese language advocacy group, demanding that he remove subversive content from his website and... uh, he has since dissolved the organisation entirely, for fearing, of course, further repercussions. Now, the latest incident has again raised concerns about the policing of language in China. And to help us understand what's at play, we're joined by historian Gina Ann Tam. Gina... Is Associate Professor of History at Trinity University in Texas, author of uh, Dialect and Nationalism in China, and of a new piece for Foreign Affairs magazine. Gina, welcome. Let's begin by going back to the story of that raid in Hong Kong. What actually happened?
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, So as you introduced um, a few weeks ago in late August, a Cantonese Language Advocacy Group known as the Hong Kong Language Learning Association was shut down when National Security Police questioned the founder of the group about an essay contest that the group hosted about three years ago for literature composed in Cantonese, which is the main language spoken in Hong Kong. So one of the essays was a fictional, futuristic short story, but the focus was on how the... um main character of the story, story, sought to uncover lost histories of Hong Kong that had disappeared. Um, So National Security Police told Chan to remove the essay from his website in a warrantless search of his home. And soon after, he put out a statement that he had no choice but to dissolve the group entirely. And I think that this event really matters. This isn't just a sad portent of how much the 2020 National Security Law in Hong Kong has changed the city. Um, A law that was supposed to, in its wording, outlaw, such crimes as subversion of the state or advocating for secession, but in practice has been used to sweep away all kinds of of dissent, including a lot of the protest activity that had been ongoing since 2019. Um, But it's also a really important moment for language rights in China. Um, Now, it's true that we'll never really know whether the primary goal of the national security police questioning um, was to try and shut down the group or whether they were just concerned about the essay. But the result is that an organization that has worked to promote a language indigenous to china that is not mandarin is now gone um, and that's a really stark example to me of the fact that it's becoming more and more difficult to advocate for promote or celebrate chinese languages that are not the national language
0: and of course cantonese is so central to uh, to many hong kongers isn't it it's a source of pride
1: yes it very much is um and and i i want to stress right that that Cantonese in some ways is sort of unique in Hong Kong because it is the primary language spoken in Hong Kong. And since the 1997 handover, and in particular in the last 10 years or so, there have been attempts by Hong Kongers to sort of protect and preserve a local Hong Kong identity that is different or even sort of opposed to um, the identity, the Chinese identity of the Chinese nation state and of the People's Republic of China. Um, And so Cantonese has become a really central part of that identity. Um, But part of what I argue in my own work is that there are many, many different local languages spoken within China that perhaps don't have quite the connotations of protest or defiance that Cantonese often has in Hong Kong, but are still really meaningful to people's lives and are a, a source of, of of identity that is a sort of like alternative Chinese identity that is really meaningful to people.
0: We'll circle back to the notion of uh, the control of languages being absolutely about power a little later. Mm. But to understand how we've gotten to this point, we need a bit of a history lesson. In Chinese languages, of course, have very ancient origins, but the standardization of Mandarin as the national language is a much more recent project.
1: Yes, it is. So, China is an extremely like linguistically diverse country. Um, so in addition to languages spoken within Chinese ruled territories that are spoken by people who are not Chinese such as Manchu or Mongolian, there are also dozens if not hundreds of local Chinese languages like Cantonese or Shanghainese or Sichuanese, many of which are and I want to stress this not mutually intelligible with one another. Um, and for and for big chunks of China's history it was ruled by a singular emperor, and a singular empire. But there really weren't, with only sort of one exception in the 18th century, no real concerted efforts to change the multilingualism of the empire. Indeed, it was just sort of the norm that everyday people in their villages or in their towns spoke different languages. And this really changes in the 19th century. So China becomes exposed to an increasingly globalized world, largely through violent Western colonialism, right? Britain wages a war against China. Um, And the threat of Western imperialism makes Chinese elites take seriously Western narratives about modernity. And one of these narratives is that modern nations have one language to represent them. So, It was with this contention that in order to survive and thrive as a modern country, China needed to modernize. And that meant fundamentally shifting um, its sort of linguistic landscape that we see the birth of the national language movement in China.
0: There was an attempt to develop a new language altogether, a sort of like an Esperanto.
1: Absolutely. So in the early days of this national language movement, um, I think today we often think of like, well, there's lots of languages spoken in China and people were just trying to figure out which one would be the national representative. But there were a lot of people, elites in China, who felt as though there wasn't one language that could represent China. And that actually the best way to represent them is to sort of create something new that best sort of encapsulates the cultural core of what China is. So it often gets compared to something like Esperanto right So we're taking bits and pieces of phonological um, qualities from different local languages and putting them together. Um, so this was one of the this was the first national language that was proposed in China. Uh, The problem then became that this was a language that nobody actually spoke. And they sort of ran up against practicalities, right, that you have elites who are sort of desperate to make sure that everyone's speaking the same language. And they recognize that there's not really anybody who can teach this language to 600 million people. Um, And so by the time we get to the 1920s, you have a group of elites who sort of become more vocal and say, we really should just do what other countries have done, which is pick the language of the capital. Um, and so that's how they end up choosing the language of Beijing as the country's representative. Um, now, they're looking to say, yes, go we're, ahead. <laughs> we're
0: talking about the spoken word. What efforts have been made to uh, simplify Chinese writing, which is so immensely complex to the, to the Western eye?
1: Yes. So concurrent with all of these efforts to unify spoken language, there's also a sense from Chinese elites that China's script is also outdated. So China, um, Chinese script is a little bit different than other alphabetic scripts in that um Characters often have both a phonetic portion and a semantic portion, which means you can look at it and know what it means even if you don't quite know how to pronounce it. But there's also clues to its pronunciation, too. The takeaway here, though, is that there are thousands, if not tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of characters that you need to know to be literate. Um, And so in the early 20th century, a lot of these same Chinese language reformers started to fear that this was hindering Chinese literacy rates. Um, And so many of them proposed that they get rid of the Chinese script altogether and replace it with something phonetic. Um, Now, this is a policy that ends up sort of getting scrapped, um, by the time we get to the 1950s, um, because it's really difficult to change a script altogether. And there's also a lot of cultural heritage that comes with a script, but ultimately, um, what you have is that instead you have efforts in particular by the People's Republic of China to simplify characters, so to make them a little bit easier to write. Um, Now, they will claim that this simplification and standardization raised literacy rates. Um, I think that that's a difficult thing to prove, especially since we don't have character simplification in places like Hong Kong or Taiwan, and literacy rates there are very high too. But nonetheless, right, there's, there's a sense in which there's something really interesting that happens in that in the early 20th century, there's a belief that modern languages are phonetic. But what China and Taiwan and Hong Kong and, and Japan have proven is that you can be a really, really modern country with a modern language that doesn't necessarily have a phonetic script.
0: A question in parenthesis, what is the principal language spoken in the diaspora?
1: That's a great question. So, along, uh, so when you have sort of, migrations of Chinese overseas, in particular sort of in larger numbers in the 19th and early 20th century, many of them were coming from the South, um, which is why, say, in San Francisco, the primary Chinese language there is spoken in Cantonese. Um, in New York's Chinatown, a long time ago, the primary language was Cantonese. You also get a lot of Fujinese. You get a lot of Hakka. Um, today, because there are so many people coming from not only Um, China, but also from Taiwan during the Cold War, where the national language is also Mandarin, um, that is starting to change. And so it depends really on where in the diaspora, right? So um, there are countries and there are cities where the primary Chinese language is the language like Cantonese. Um, I think San Francisco and Vancouver are two that come to mind. Um, But then there are other places, say in Singapore, where there was a really heavy state effort to enforce Mandarin, where Mandarin is the more common language spoken.
0: Okay, under President Xi, what's happened over the last decade?
1: There have been laws increasingly pushing Mandarin since the 1980s. And there was a new law in the early 2000s that gave these policies a little bit more direction than teeth. But to me, there are three things that have changed since Xi Jinping took over um, when it comes to language rights. So the first is that Under Xi Jinping, there are sort of the extent to which authorities from the central government have the power to shape very intimate and banal and private ways that people act have changed. Um, A big part of this is the Internet, right? So there's a lot of language policing that happens on the Internet. Um, A very, uh, very obvious example is that on the uh, video sharing platform Douyin um, there are Cantonese um, live streamers that have been told that they need to speak Mandarin instead of Cantonese. Um, and um, there are also sort of popular performers that have been told they need to perform in Mandarin instead of, instead of their local language. And so that level of intimacy with which people can be controlled in sort of their everyday creations has really increased under Xi Jinping. Um, the second is that there's a sort of incentive at the local level to really push the party line from state authorities. So, for instance, in Xinjiang, there has been a huge push among Uyghurs who have been locked up in um, concentration camps um, um, and and detention centers um, have been really, have been forced to learn Mandarin, but also in places like Sichuan, where local officials have banned the use of Sichuanese in in local areas. But to me, the most important thing that has changed under Xi Jinping is that the Xi Jinping government is particularly interested in enforcing a homogenous, unified notion of what it means to be Chinese um, that combines an ethnic identity, a national identity, and loyalty to the state. And this means a devaluing, if not outright suppression, of alternative ways of expressing a Chinese identity, including non-Mandarin languages.
0: And this, of course, has had immense impact on the Uyghurs.
1: Yes, it has. Um, Language crackdowns and Mandarin hegemony have been particularly harsh when it comes to languages spoken by minoritized ethnicities. Um, And to me, the main reason is that while Xi Jinping has maintained that there should be only one homogenous Chinese identity that's built on one Chinese language, in the case of um, non-Han ethnicities, the state sees their separate identities as far more threatening, um, in part because while the state really doesn't tolerate any dissent from anybody, they tend to view dissent from ethnic minorities as akin to separatism, which is a far more serious crime than dissent alone. Moreover, while the state sees Mandarin promotion as a good way to foster a unified identity in national Belonging. This is something that they see that the need to force much more among non-Han people than the Han. So, in addition to what's happening in Xinjiang, um, there were also protests a couple of years ago in Inner Mongolia um, for um, for the sort of Mongolians wanted more rights to learn and um, speak their own languages. And those protests got really, really harsh crackdowns.
0: So the schoolrooms have become the front line.
1: Yes. Um, and they historically have been actually since the 1950s um, that the schoolroom has been the the main place where language promulgation is supposed to happen
0: what happens on social media is uh, can people use Cantonese or do they have to use Mandarin
1: that's a great question so what you'll see sort of is that for um, platformers that are more popular, um, that they will get messages um, when they're live streaming to please use Mandarin. And that enforcement is uneven. But even knowing that enforcement exists, I think, is, is has a chilling effect, right? And so even people who h- will have like little doughy videos explaining how to say things in different languages, the primary language is still in Mandarin and they'll have like vocabulary, like cute vocabulary in my local language and those kinds of things. And so it's not an easily multilingual space and the threat of enforcement i think has that chilling effect
0: okay now there are some who would argue that uh, having one nation one language is is eminently practical even for basic things like road signage but uh, something much deeper is going on here isn't it and as we said yes. at the outset it's about power
1: Yes, I think so. And so we often think of a national language as sort of a national state of existence, natural state of existence. That of course each nation should have one language, and that we should all speak it. Um, this is—I live in the United States, right? One of the primary markers a lot of Americans think of as being American is speaking English. Um, but we've not always been a world of nation states, and not all nation states exist in a space where linguistic hierarchies are so stark. So of course it's ideal if we can all communicate with one another. But multilingual spaces do not have to preclude that. And I think oftentimes our hand wringing about the kinds of challenges that multilingualism creates often blinds us to the things we lose when we uphold the idea that only one language should be spoken or given material support. So I often think of a Chicana feminist, her name is uh, Gloria Anzaldúa, who often who said that her language is her skin, right? Our languages are central to who we are as people. And when we uphold one language as the only one that gets support and then starve or oppress others, we deprive speakers of those languages the right to live and exist within their own skins.
0: Well, as you point out, language is core to people's identity, to their history, yes. to their culture, even, in fact, to their humour.
1: Yes, I think that's absolutely true.
0: Gina, thanks for that. I've been talking to Gina Ann Tam, Associate Professor of History at Trinity University in Texas and author of Dialect and Nationalism in China. And you can read her latest article on the policing of language in China in Foreign Affairs magazine. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.